0: to give. Um, We understand that it is an honor and a privilege to participate in um, your kingdom mission. Lord God, we know that 10% doesn't just belong to you, but everything we have belongs to you, Lord God. And so our tithes and our offerings and our gifts are only but um, a portion to remind ourselves that the whole of everything that we have totally and unadulteratedly belongs to you, Lord God. So I pray in Christ's name for our time today as we dive into scriptures that we would see Jesus, um, that we would see Jesus and see him anew and that through the gospel that we would find fresh spiritual vitality uh, to pursue you with everything that we have, Lord God. So help our hearts and help our minds uh, to be enthralled by the true ruler of all things seen and unseen. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 And so um, if you can, if you can, we have people still coming in. If you could kind of squeeze into your row, if you got an extra seat on your row, um, people are still coming in. And we, we're running out of places to put chairs. So um, if we could squeeze in, that would be excellent. That would be excellent. That'd be excellent. All right. <laughs> Today we're, we're continuing in our series, but we're back in. We took a break last week as we talked about a biblical understanding of community in light of us launching um, small groups. Um, but this week we're diving back in um, to our series on Jesus Christ in the life of. And so what we've been doing is we've been going through OT passages. Thank you. We've been going through OT passages, law prophets writings, looking at different characters that, um, that um, we see. Um, pictures and foreshadowings of Jesus in, and we want to be able to clearly apply some of those truths to our life. The character that i 'm going to talk about today um, is probably one of my, my, my most favorite Bible characters. Everybody has a favorite Bible character, um, but this this character outside of Jesus Christ is my favorite uh, favorite uh, non messianic bible character and um, there's a lot of reasons which I may, you may figure out during the course of the message, you may or may not. But as, as I dive into this message, it kind of reminds me, you know, my wife um, likes to watch every now and then um, Food Network. Like at first, I, I, you know, I, I, I felt funny kind of watching it, you know, watching cats, you know, break eggs and stir them up and whisk eggs and sifting flour. You know, I didn't, that didn't feel good to your boy, you know what I'm saying? And so, but, you know, as I began to, because I like cooking, I kind of connected with it a little bit. And um, one of my shows, I think, is the most manly, like, dude show on there, you know what I'm saying, is is um, the Iron Chef. Just, I like the name, the Iron Chef. It's, it, it just, it, it got a oomph to it, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I forgot what one of the other shows name, I, I didn't like the other show, but I like the name of this show, the Iron Chef, And what I like about this show is um, that it's, it's, it's a Japanese-inspired show that kind of uh, gets uh, one chef who has gotten what they call iron, uh, iron uh, chef status and another one who's an excellent chef but still not having iron chef, chef status and they're put before um, several judges, maybe three or four judges, and they're given the opportunity to take a mystery merchandise or a mystery piece of food or produce of some type, and through um, that merchandise or that produce, they have to come up with an appetizer, a main course, and a dessert. And, and I'm, always, I'm always blown away by the show because I'm always blown away by the fact that I'm like, man, what are they going to do with, like, with like uh, like they, one time they had an ostrich egg, like you had to make, and the ostrich egg was like, I mean, they have all types of stuff, stuff I've never even heard of. But what's interesting with that show that reminds me of, 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 of what um, our sermon is going to be about today and the character we're going to talk about is it reminds me of how the Lord takes difficult things and cooks those difficult things in our life and makes something wonderful out of it. See, when I watch this show, I see how they take crazy things that no one would ordinarily cook with, n- n- people wouldn't ordinarily use, and they take those things and, and, and they whip them into something. You're looking bad ow! and cats just got a smoking meal that's savory and tasty, and even something that's ready for sale and could even be expensive. And through the life of Joseph today, we're going we're gonna to see a cat whose life that we're going to see was cooked by Jesus, And we're going to see Jesus as the Iron Chef in his life as he takes unique circumstances, difficult circumstances, and makes them into something that is flavorful before the mouth of the living God. And so as we dive in, we're going to to make as our base text um, Genesis, Genesis 45, but I know that many of us, about 50 plus percent of us, Really didn't grow up in the church. And so what I, what I want to do is I kind of want to give you a recap without preaching the entire story of Joseph. I want to give you a brief recap of his life so that when we get in his text, there is some clarity in it. So I'm going to talk about for a little while today, Jesus Christ in the life of Joseph, seeing life redemptively. Seeing life redemptively. Can you say that with me? Seeing life Redemptively, I'm going to explain that big adverb right there, redemptively, in a minute so that we can begin to see life in a whole different life. Because all of our lives, especially if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, are booby-trapped. Everybody's life is booby-trapped. I don't know if you know it or not. Some of you find out accidentally, and when you become a Christian and you realize things like some guy's promise up front that the Christian life is going to be bubbly in a particular way, then all of a sudden a bunch of difficult stuff that you don't understand starts happening to you, and then you get very confused. Because you're like, I thought the man, when he called me to the altar said, um, Jesus loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I thought that wonderful plan in, involved increase. And he told me during the message to say increase. And I said, increase. And I put my hand up high. He said, say increase. And I said, increase. And, and, and I, I, but, but but little did I know that the increase that I was asking for wasn't the same increase that God was going to bring to me. And some of you confused right now sitting here as believers. You've been expecting financial increase, but there's been a decrease. You've been expecting gear increase, but there's been a gear decrease. You know what I'm saying? Um, you, have been experiencing, you want you want relational increase, but there's been relational decrease because the increase in man's eyes is a decrease in God's eyes, but a decrease in man's eyes is an increase in God's eyes. See, that's called paradox. That's called flip backwards. You know, some old, some old stuff that man, see, man, we always like to keep score differently from God. And when you keep score differently from God, you're gonna be blatantly disappointed regularly. But when you begin to keep score like him, when you begin to allow your life to be married in his mind and spending time with him, spending time with people that expect what God expects versus what man expects, then what happens is your mindset changes and you're geared up and you're ready for action. So my man Jojo, Joseph, he's he's stabbing through for us and giving us a booming example of what a life looks like when it's seen redemptively. Y'all with me? And so Joseph in 37, you know, young boy up in the... Up, up in the hood of, of um, Diana Canaan, you know, chilling with his brothers, got a booming little vision from the Lord, you know, and he was so happy about that vision. He thought he would tell his brothers, as the youngest brother, thinking that that vision of him being exalted and them bowing before him was going to be something that the whole family was going to get excited about. But my man Joseph didn't really, he was, he was excited about hearing or getting a vision from God, not realizing that people's reaction to that vision was going to be very different than he expected. And so you see in Genesis chapter 37, you see Joseph dealing with the challenges of the relationship with his brothers because of the favoritism of his dad. I mean, you got to understand, his, he came from a very dysfunctional home. He came from a very dysfunctional home um, where his granddaddy was a liar. His granddaddy Abraham was a liar. He lied. His, his grandfather was a liar, and he he didn't he didn't have a broader view of masculinity. He only had a scrummage view of masculinity. So he liked his son Esau better. He liked his son Jacob. Jacob what, what was a different cat? And so Jacob. Grew up as a mama's boy, but he played favorites among wives he had. all I mean, you can't imagine what this cat's life was. He got three mamas in the four mamas in the house. You know what I'm saying? So he's dinner. This ain't like he divorced her, he divorced. No, all of them in the crib together, you got all of these brothers in the house that that is four groups of sons, dysfunctional crib. You know, so I don't know who was, I mean, you got to understand the level of dysfunction. Daddy liked this wife better than the other three, so the sons probably felt like stepchildren rather than sons. And then you got him born last, but them born first. Him liking the last son better than he liked the, I mean, this was a, a crazy, crazy household that my man Joseph grew up in. A very dysfunctional home because there was dysfunctional people in it. And I know many of us think we had good homes, but many of ours were just as dysfunctional if we want to be honest as Joseph's crib. No matter what side of the, the railroad tracks you grew up on, if you're not in Christ, you got a dysfunctional home. And so, and so my man Joseph deals with this reality with his brothers, and then all of a sudden his brothers get jealous of his vision. And so they said, you know what, we're going to sell them to our cousins. So Joseph got a sweet coat from his parents and, 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 and then he ended up getting sold into slavery to their cousins and he was sent to Egypt. And so what's crazy about this story is all of a sudden in Genesis 38, you see like this abridged story. Like it's like where in the world did Genesis 38 come from after Genesis 37? Because the story goes from Joseph to talking about his big brother Judah. And, it's, and, and I believe the story was specifically an abridgment or an appendices to the general story to give us a view of Joseph's character versus his brother Judah's character. And, 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 and what we see is, is that God was doing something unique in the life of Joseph, not because Joseph was special, but because God was, is passionate about his glory and has particular decrees that must come to pass. And so he was, compa- he was being compared to his brother Judah, which, was, which, which liked prostitutes. Uh, um, the text seemed to say he, he liked to be around prostitutes. But then when you go over to chapter 39, you see, you see Joseph rejecting a prostitute like him. So you see a comparison in his life that even his li- even though he's gone in slavery, God's hand was on him. And my man Joseph began to be exalted in the household of Potiphar, who was the who was the leader of the guards of Pharaoh's crib. And so Pharaoh's, I mean, my man Potiphar's wife, you know, she was an older woman. He about 17 years old. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know what, what Joseph was doing. You know, I don't know if he was swapping the deck. I don't know if it was a little hot in Egypt that day. And he decided to, you know, take off his shirt and to work a little bit. And Potiphar's wife saw his glisteningness all in the sun sunlight. He had triceps biceps trapezoriiuses, quadriceps, amen, calves, and all types of things in his life. So, so Potiphar's wife probably had somebody carrying an umbrella for him, and, and my man Joseph was washing the deck, you know, real slow, getting his, you know, getting his wash on, and Potiphar's wife was look, her perfume, and did she look? And she looked and saw a, a, a tricep just going, Rical, right there. You know what I'm saying? And she saw Joseph and she was like, mmm. And, 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 she, and she said, she, she said to everybody else, she said, see y'all later. And everybody just dipped, you know. And so she came up to Joseph. She's an older woman. Joseph is a virgin. He's never had intercourse with anyone before. She's an older, more experienced woman. Nobody's in the crib. So, you know, I mean, Jojo, nobody's around, fam. She about to push up on you. Perfect opportunity. And most of us as fellas would have been like, oh, man, that's a banging opportunity. Let me get around and Let me get. But see that? now? how Joseph thought. You know what I'm saying? Joseph didn't she pulled up on him and snatched him. He put his jacket on when she came in because the Bible says she had his jacket on. And he put his jacket on and she grabbed him and said, lie with me. And he, he said, fall back, fall back, baby, fall back. You know what I'm saying? She came to him again. Lie with me. You know, we say some old nasty type. Now, the Bible glazes things nicely over for us. She just says, lie with me. And so... At the end, my man Joseph shook off his jacket and he dipped. But, but before he dipped, he was like, how can I do this great sin against God? And what's beautiful about what we see in his life, even during these times, is Joseph, what we're going to talk about, was motivated by God-centeredness. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But then he goes on, and because of that, she lied on him. And really, in Egypt or anywhere, if you were trying to rape or commit adultery with especially a leader like this, you would have automatically got hanged or killed or tortured. But what's so powerful about this story is that you see the providential hand of the living God by the fact that he got thrown in prison. He did not get killed. Why? Because even when man is attempting to get you for something that you did not do, many times if God's hand is on you and, your, and his glory is not completely um, maximized in your life at that particular time, he'll provide a way out. And so you see that there, and then he goes from there, and then he gets put in prison. And as he gets put in prison, Joseph is placed in a, a situation where he's like, Dag, you know what I'm saying? But look, I'm, I'm going to maximize the take and make the most of this opportunity. Even though I'm in prison, um, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. Then um, two cats came in, a cupbearer and a baker. And of course, Joseph, Joseph talked to them about a vision that they both had, a dream that they both had. And he gave them an interpretation. One was to be killed, and one was to be exalted back to his position. The the, the cupbearer was to be back in his position in three days. The baker was to be killed. And he said, yo, man, when you get back up, don't forget about your boy. You know, when you get your exaltation, when you go to Pharaoh, tell him about me. He was like, all right. When he got out of jail, he was like, "Woo, glad to be out of prison. And the Bible says he forgot about Joseph. So I can't imagine what Joseph was feeling like. Feeling like God had given him, God was, God has spoke to him clearly. And and during the course of his entire life, he's still going through all of these different challenges. Why in the world would someone who heard a word from God go through so much hell and high water? And you see during the course of his life where he's dealing with this challenge, but then all of a sudden here, you see that Pharaoh has a dream. And when Pharaoh has this dream, Pharaoh is left with and stuck with the need for interpretation to the point that he's going to kill everybody in his kingdom that um, was supposed to give him wisdom on it. But the cupbearer remembered Joseph, and Joseph was brought um, to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asked him to interpret his dream. And he says, interpretations don't belong to me, but they belong to God. And so you see that Joseph's interpretation of that passage of of, of Pharaoh's dream was dope. And because it was God-centered and uh, God-breathed and God-orientated, that it was going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, um, that God exalted through Pharaoh Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh. But then all of a sudden, a a unique time came in Genesis 42.7, where... It brings us to our current passage, which is Genesis 45. But in Genesis 42, 7, Joseph is faced with something that all of us must face, which brings me to my first point. If you're going to see life redemptively, if you're going to see life redemptively, I'm going to explain that. You must be willing to face your past biblically because it opens up the door for healing. Facing your past biblically opens up the door for healing. Let me say that again. Not just facing your past, but facing it biblically opens up the door for healing. So what we look at is we see in Genesis 45, verse 1, we see it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Jacob made himself known to his brothers. When uh, Joseph uh, made himself known to his brothers. It says, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the whole household of Pharaoh heard it. So Joseph, this is kind of like the climax of the story. Because what you see in the story is Joseph saw his brothers off of a distance during the time of famine. And he noticed that it was his brother's. And what he did is he took his brothers through a time of testing. Some scholars say this is unfair. Um, Some scholars say that Joseph was being spiritually immature, um, that Joseph could have just, um, he was um, embittered towards his brothers. I don't think the biblical text tells us that. He might have been, but the spirit of God didn't really choose to give us that type of of dealing. So, So what's in the text seems to give us a pointing to I believe he was testing their character. He was testing their character to see whether or not how they dealt with him in in his past, they had actually changed. And so Joseph gets here, and what I like about this is Joseph didn't go after his past. God brought his past after him. See, many of us have pasts that we would like to forget about. Many of us have things that if we... You know, if we had a booth like you know the Catholic Church has, we had a little booth, a confessional booth. You'll probably edit some of your um, what you would tell us, um, because some of us have very, very challenging pasts. But what's interesting about this is the text doesn't say Joseph went after his past. The text shows us that God brought his past to his doorstep. And many of us have pasts that we want to forget about. Many of us have paths that, that that if it was laid out in a book. We wouldn't want to change our name so that no one would be put out there like that. But what's beautiful about this is that God gave Joseph the grace to experience his past and deal with his past and he dealt with his past. And you will know um, because many times you're not going to get to the place where God wants you to be until you deal with some issues that are encumbrances And sins in your past for you to properly move forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see beautifully in this passage that that Joseph has to face in his particular area, he has to face family issues. He has to face this dysfunctional family that he's forgotten about. And many of you, especially those of you who are not from Philly, or those of you who are from Philly that have moved out from the crib, many of you, just like Joseph, you know what I'm saying, really don't have good relationship with your family. You really don't like your family much. You like the family of God more than you like your family. And so what happens is, is you tend to ignore the fact that your family actually exists, but they still exist. And if there were some punishing things in your life that caused you not to get to the place where God wants you to get in your spiritual development, God will uniquely, outside of your own passion, outside of your own desire, Bring the very thing that you're trying to reject, the very thing that you're trying to push away, right to your doorstep because God is concerned about our ability to have comprehensive and total, complete wholeness in every area of our lives. And because God is so passionate about himself being glorified, he wants to make sure that we're biblically in the right place to be properly used by him. Therefore, he must invade and fight in our lives in some areas of decrease. That means in order to increase at times, God has to bring decrease. God has to allow spiritual flat tires. Uh, um, He has to have spiritually broken windows, spiritually broke down catalytic converters, exhaust pipes, all types of stuff that happen to your life to slow you down because some of us move so fast where we're not letting the Lord Jesus Christ into every sphere of our lives. And so what God has to do is God has to chop our lives up. And some of you are going through the chopping right now where you you don't really understand why God is is allowing your life to feel like your whole soul is like one big hoopty, But what God is doing in your soul is God wants to stop you for a second from moving on on your journey so he can properly get you on his journey. And so Joseph, in his exalted state, he got on fat gear. He He wearing ivory earrings. You know what I'm saying? That's more pure than God. Uh, I mean, you know, he chilling. Fat old hat. He got on a, he had on a pharaoh fitted. You know what I'm saying? Um, he got on a linen outfit, gold, gold on, you know, uh, nice paintings, hieroglyphs, hieroglyphic tattoos. I mean, he over, you know what I'm saying, all of Egypt chilling doing his thing. Got a wifey, got a couple little ones. I mean, everything should be what Joseph has always wanted. He got all of the loot he wants. He's administrator over an entire country. I mean, live. I mean, living the high life. I mean, you talking about twenty twos and twenty sixes? I mean, he had fifty twos on his uh, on his uh, on his chariot. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, so he was living fat, had cash driving him. He was getting chauffeured, sitting back in the cut with his wife while somebody fanning him. Sometimes somebody was carrying him. So why in the world would I want God to interrupt all that? All this exaltation, and now God wants to start doing something and bringing stuff into my life. Because no matter how much you have on the outside, if you haven't dealt with the interior issues, your enjoyment of the outside will always be eclipsed by a dampening of your soul on the inside. And so that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel doesn't let us get away with physical upgrades that make us look like we've been spiritually upgraded. The gospel won't let you Because God's real about his... And he's not going to let you front because he knows we like the front. So my man Joe, he, he's here and he's in a great exalted state. But we see right here that God interrupts him by bringing his past to his doorstep. He has what we call emotions. So Joseph has to deal first of all with his emotions, with his emotions. The text says, and Joseph could not control himself. I mean, he got to the point where he was trying to, you know how, fellas, we try to keep it together. But at a certain point, when God is toasting your soul and breaking you up, making you deal with forgotten issues, the most non-crying, most sweaty, big old dude, no matter who he is, when God comes in your life to bring comprehensive wholeness, he wants to break everything so that you can focus on him. And so Joseph, it says, he said he could not control himself any longer before those who stood by him. It said he cried. Then he said, make everybody go out from me. He said, so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So can you imagine it? All of a sudden, this guy that put you through all of this, going back and forth to the land of Canaan without an airplane, without a train, walking and riding donkeys and horses, if you will. And now he's saying, everybody go out to me. And he takes off his pharaoh fitted and he says to them, it says, and he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of pharaoh heard it. This would have been very dishonoring in their society. Then it says, and Joseph said to his brothers, said, I'm Joseph. Said, I'm Joseph. So Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. I don't know how his brothers was feeling. I know if I whooped up, did what I did to somebody, I would be expecting, all right, fellas, let's go ahead and just say our last rites to Yahweh because we about to get stabbed up right now. But it's interesting Joseph is weeping. He's, oh, oh, man, I can't believe it. Oh, get out, get out from me. Get out, get out from among me. Uh, uh, I'm Joseph, man. They're probably like, Joseph? Then the first question after that, he says, how's daddy doing? They're like, hold on, hold on. How are you just going to go from all of this that you just took us through, and then you're going to ask us, how's dad doing? He wasn't just asking whether his dad was alive. He probably wanted to know whether or not they were telling the truth about him. Or they wanted to. He maybe just wanted to know was he faring well. But what's beautiful about this is he not only seeks, he only he not only deals with his emotions in facing his past biblically, but he also deals with the relationships that were broken in dealing with his past. And so, a man Joseph is willing to deal with his past. In other words, he wasn't he wasn't complacent and he wasn't passive. See, many of us, the reason why we're scared to deal with our past is because we're systemically passive. If it was up to us, there would be no confrontation anywhere in our lives. But to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't live under constant passivity. You see, because Jesus Christ, especially when we see in his incarnation, loved confrontation because he always got to the point through confrontation. If you look in John 8, The Lord Jesus Christ confronts the Pharisees about how foul they were as leaders. We see consistency in Jesus confronting the Sadducees when they talked about marriage and when they had unbiblical understandings of marriage. When Jesus Christ deals with people, Jesus Christ confronts. And because he's not a punk, he's not a sucker, he's not going to fall back and say, everything's going to be okay, let me cuddle with you and wipe your tears. Now, there's a time for that, but then there's a time for him to get up in you. And so when we look at the way my man Joseph is forced by God to deal with his past, he confronts his past head on. He doesn't punk out, but he doesn't do it abrasively. He doesn't do it unlovingly, and he doesn't do it self-righteously. He does it in a deep state of brokenness. And so as he be- begins the process of God giving him the grace for relational healing, he's not, he's not doing psychobabble here. He's dealing biblically with the ideals of biblical confrontation that God wants of all of us as believers. But then it says, look at the response of his brothers. It says, but but his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. And so you see Joseph's brothers being extremely, extremely confused about how he's interacting with him. But then look at Joseph's response. The Bible says, it says, so Joseph, it says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. What's this, what's beautiful about this is he didn't allow his brothers to be pushed back from him. He does something that Jesus does for us through the gospel. See, see through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus brings reconciliation and he closes the gap between God and man, but not only does he uh, close the gap between God and man, but he also closes the gap between man and man. And so we, we see in the life of Joseph where Joseph didn't front on his brothers and tell him to fall back. No, in seeing his life redemptively and being a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, listen, come close. I don't want y'all to be afraid of me. I want to reveal myself for real, for real. I don't want to... How many of you have people and relationships in your life where the cross of Christ needs to bring some type of reconciliation to it? Your life isn't going to be... I don't care if you had a bad relationship with your pops, even if he beat mom, even if you got molested, even if somebody in the household knew you were getting molested and didn't say anything while you were getting molested, knowing that you were getting molested. We, we, we see the validity of the pain that you may be dealing with. But the cross of Christ demands that if we're going to love God and say we love God, we even have to face some of the most difficult and painful relationships with people. Now, we can't be thinking about what their response is going to be. Most of us are like, well, they, I know how it's going to be. I done tried it already, and I done tried a little bit, and they're going to they gonna front on me. They're going no, it, 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 God is still, if you're a Christian, at the beamer seat of Christ is going to ask you deep questions about whether or not you did all that you could do biblically to bridge the gap between you and another person. And so who in your life do you need to confront? Who in your life hurts you so badly, wrecks you so badly, and you've never really, I'm not just talking about you speaking your mind in the flesh, cussing them all out. I'm glad I got this opportunity. <laughs> nah, nah, come, come, come near me, come, come close, come close. Let's, let's talk, let's sit down, and let's walk through this thing together. That's biblical reconciliation. When we talk about seeing life redemptively, seeing life redemptively looks like something that was used for dishonorable use. God, through his purchase of us through the Lord Jesus Christ, with it, purchases the ability to utilize every single thing in our life to his glory. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Can you handle God using the very thing that you want to run away from as the very thing that he wants to get the most glory out of? Can you handle that? See, but you got to deal with your bitterness. What is bitterness? Hebrews chapter 13 uh, talks about the fact that uh, be careful of the root of bitterness which sprouting up defiles many. What is bitterness? Bitterness is fermented unforgiveness. It's unforgiveness that set out on the counter so long that it began to mold. And whenever you let Your anger and your and your hatred of people and places and things. Some of you might be sitting here saying, My issue is not with man. I don't want to say it out too loud. My issue is with God. Some of you are bitter with God because the thing that he allowed to happen to you, he allowed to happen to you and you can't see life from his perspective because you're still holding on to your right to be angry, for your right to be frustrated. But God, through the cross, calls us to submit our rights to the feet of the cross of Jesus Christ, and in forfeiting our rights, we take on what he calls us to take on, being doulas, being slaves. And so, some of you this week need to confront some people. Some of us need to send out an email on a call to somebody and talk to them. Some of you need to pray honestly to God for the first time you have in a long time. Some of you all haven't prayed to God honestly in a long time. Why? Because you're still not seeing your life the way God sees it. You see it the way you want to see it, and You've been wondering why prayer's been frustrating, why getting in the Bible's been frustrating, why getting around God's people is frustrating, why coming to church is frustrating, why going to a cypher group doesn't sound like a great thing. It's because you haven't dealt with the relational issues that are in the core of your soul that the gospel demands that you deal with. And God is not going to let it get better until you face it. You say, what if the person's dead? Deal with it before the living God. Pray to him. Talk to him. Some people want you to go to the grave. I mean, that may be something like nice psychological, but theologically they're not there. So you go to God, not uh, some bones. <laughs> I mean, that might be nice. Put the chair in front of you. Sit in front of the chair. Imagine that there, that, no, go before God. For you be channeling and speaking to people that's dead and something around a table with a bunch of foolish people. Go before God. Don't be talking to no dead people. Amen? Amen. 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 But then look at it. I'm I'm going to hit my last point and then I'm going to sit down. But then last, you know what I'm saying, but not least, we see that facing your past biblically gives you a divine perspective. Yeah. Facing your past biblically. Make sure you write biblically, highlight it, bold it, underline it, circle it, asterisk it, whatever you got to do to focus on it because I don't want you to start dealing with your past in the flesh. Now look, at, now look at what he says. The first thing that we see that shows how he develops a divine perspective is that he calms the heart of his offenders. Look at what he says. He says, come near to me, please, verse 4. He says, and they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So he doesn't skirt around the issue that he said, yeah, I'm the one you sold into slavery. He didn't just throw it in their face. He made sure they didn't have any excuse of not knowing who he was or that he was fronting like he was somebody else. He said, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. But listen to what he says. He says, and now, he says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I like that. I like that. You can tell that before Joseph dealt with his offenders, God dealt with him. (laughs) See, many of us go before people without going before God. And that's how you're going to be in the flesh and acting a plum fool. Because you're going to get your emotion, you're going to get your emotion thing on, you're going to get the cussing, you're going to get the stamping, you're going to get the acting a plum fool. But you can tell, I don't know whether, it, whether or not it was on the way to Egypt when, when he was getting carried by his cousins and changing. He was walking through the desert from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. I don't know if it was there that he was praying, Yahweh, what's good? thought you gave your boy a vision. I don't know how he spoke to God. I don't know if everything was exalting in his life and he ended up in the prison and he's in there in a grimy prison maybe with fat rats around him, grub grub foul, being lied on. He's like, God, you know what I'm saying, I got to deal with this issue with my brother. Or I don't know if it was the day of his exaltation and, and and he saw his brothers where he dealt with it. I don't know, but at some point, in order for him to be able to calm them down, God had to calm him down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the key, is that many of us, in order for us to see life redemptively, to see, to see every area of our life as purchased by Jesus, and him authorizing the ability through the cross-centered contract to use any area of your life how he doggone well pleases. That's a challenge. Because then you have to get before God and allow God to resurrect some stuff that you don't want resurrected. Put it before him, dealing with him, putting the word of God on it, talking about forgiveness, Looking at the cross saying, God, just as you forgave me, I must forgive. But, God, I'm struggling because they hurt me real bad. Matter of fact, God, I got to be honest. You hurt me real bad. It hurt. I felt like you left me out there. When they were doing what they were doing to me, because they seemed like they were getting away with it because it kept happening to me. And you, and like, like, I'm just saying, God, I know you're God. I know the cross does something. I need the gospel to do something. Like, I need you to work it out because I'm not really feeling in my flesh like redemption. I'm not feeling you buying something back and using it for your glory. Matter of fact, I wish you would just allow me to bury it and keep, it. but I know that my life is not going to be the life that you want it to be until you allow me to deal with it. So God, I pray in the name of the living God, Jesus Christ, that you would resurrect these things not for the purpose of bitterness, not for the purpose of keeping accounts against people, not not not, not for the purpose of me exalting myself, but for God, I humble myself before you because I, I, like, I'm desperate for you so much that I am open and totally used for you and that nothing gets in the way of that that you help me deal with it. Help me deal with it. Help me deal with it. And so Joseph seeing his life redemptively, he does something beautiful. He understands the sovereignty of God. (laughs) Oh, that's a big word, ain't it? Look at my man Joseph. Look at verse in verse five verse seven and verse eight. He says something interesting. When when you're living life redemptively, you got to read God into your life. Look at what he does. He says, he says, for God, in verse 5. He says, and God, verse 7. He says, but God, and God has made, in verse 8 and 9. Highlight those if you got to highlight it. That's very important. Because you see, Joseph, by the grace of Jesus, sees his life in a God-centered way. So he didn't just see his life passing time. I, I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know if Joseph well, saw, you know, saw it during the process. I doubt it. I think Joseph is now looking back. And as Joseph is looking back, some people say hindsight is twenty twenty. I think he's had post-calling cognition. He's looking back and saying, dag, if I would have known what I had to go through, for what God said in the beginning of all those years ago, 20-something years ago, how this was going to go. I don't know if I would have jumped in. If many of us would have seen a videotape of everything that God was going to allow you to go through, you probably would not. Every time, like Pastor Duceus was talking counting the cost, many of us don't have the mind to count the level of cost that it's going to take for us to walk with Jesus as a disciple. But right here, it, it says that Joseph had a God-centered orientation um, to what he was going through. He kept telling them, God, God, God. When he got with the people that frustrated him and that hurt him, he didn't just bring up his feelings, he brought up God. <laughs> you better bring up God because you may have prayed and spent some time but some of that you just may throw all that out when you're you you got to God oh yeah God <laughs> God that boy I wanted to draw my gun and blow everybody boy if it was up to me i hit you with a t- boy if it God oh my bad God see the reality of God helps us to be reminded that something in the corridors of our life, God providentially was up to something. I like the way my man uh, uh, my man, uh, 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 um, Charles Hodge explains sovereignty. Sovereignty is not a property of divine nature. In other words, he's saying that sovereignty is not necessarily a specific attribute of God. He says, but a uh, prerogative arising out of the perfections of the supreme being. So when we look at God's perfections, omniscience, omnipresence, all of the things that make God, God, sovereignty is not necessarily one of those perfections as much as it is our uh, implication rising out of his attributes. So this is a way of describing his power, which talking about God's comprehensive rule over his whole creation. He said, if God be a spirit and therefore a person, infinite, eternal, immutable in his being and perfections, the creator and preserver of the universe. He is of right. It's absolute sovereign. This is infinite wisdom, goodness, and power with the right of possession, which belongs to God and all his creatures, all immutable foundation of dominion. He says that The sovereignty of God is universal. It extends over all his creatures from highest to lowest, that it is absolute. There is no limit to be placed to his authority. In determining the nature and powers of the different orders of creation and in assigning each its proper sphere, he determines when, he determines where, And under what circumstance each individual of our race is to be born, to live, and to die. He does what he wills with his own. Can you handle that? He does what he wills with his own. How dare you talk smack to the living God who purchased you with the blood of Christ and acting like you got a better idea for your life than him. Just just remember what it was like without him. It says, he does what he wills with his own. He gives to some riches. Read, he, read 1 Timothy 6. He gives to some riches, to others' honor, to others' health, while others are poor. Some are well-known, some are unknown, victims of disease. Sovereignty. The Bible says in several places, it says in Psalm 115.3, it said, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. In other words, you can't thwart the plans of God. No matter how cool you are, no matter how much distributed power among men you have, you can't stop the hand of God. And I'm just telling you, you will get your arm broke off if you try to stiff arm the living. Close your hand if you want on the thing that he wants to get to. God believes in giving us not what we want, but what he wants. And he will break every knuckle in every one of your fingers in four or five places, not fracturing them so he can make sure he gets to it. He, God, God likes God. God likes to display before people who like to override His sovereignty. What happens to those who try to override His sovereignty? Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar went out and said, "Oh man, look at look at your boy's kingdom. Oh, you don't see me. You don't see me. You don't see me. You don't see me. You don't see me." He was up like that. God said, "Oh, I I see you, and I'm about to not see you." He took. He took, the, he took the nature of a man out of him, put a nature of an animal out of him, took him from his throne, and his throne became grass beside animals. He was eating grass for seven years. God took the old nature, the whack um, animal nature out of him, put a human nature back in him. He woke up with grass in his mouth, no shirt on. He like, oh my goodness. And God returned him to his throne. And the first thing he did was ascribe sovereignty, the reality of God's sovereignty to all of, his, all of his people saying, listen, I'm just telling y'all, where I was for, for seven years is the living God put your boy down for fronting on him. So all of the inhabitants of the earth must know that. But then we must finally consider our past missionally. Missionally. When we say missionally, We see our lives as a reflection, as a reflection of God, who is the first missionary. And that in glorifying him, he sends us to places to display that reality. Listen to how Joseph Joseph used the biblical theology of being a missionary in the text. And I'm going to be out your way. He says in verse 5, he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He said, for God sent me. Can you believe that? Joseph said, you didn't put me in slavery. God sent me through slavery. That's messing with some of y'all's theology right now. Because all you, God is good. My God wouldn't do this. The God, I serve. My God is a loving God. Hallelujah. And my God, he don't do that to me. And my, yeah, well, you have created an idol. That's not the living God. He sovereignly said, he said, God sent me through prison. God sent me through slavery. God sent me through getting lied on, but it was all for a purpose. I know it's a little struggle. I'm not saying that God sinned against you because he doesn't sin. But God did send. <laughs> he didn't sin, but he did send you through what you went through. And some of you are so busy, with, so busy with your bitterness, so busy with your rights that you can't see yourself as a missionary through the circumstance that God has taken you through. You've wasted too much time frustrated. You've wasted too much time venting to people who can't change anything. You spent so much time. you, You spent so much time in that. And God is saying, instead of spending your time in that, I want you to spend some time glorifying me and seeing your life in light of me redeeming it and using it how I will because I sent you. Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus. Jesus said, I must suffer many things at the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and I must be scourged and crucified. He said, it's a must. It's an imperative. I've been sent here for this purpose. You can talk Christ-centered life all you want, fam. But until you see everything even the things that you don't necessarily like missionally, you're not Christ-centered. Joseph seen his life as one big missionary trip. One big missionary trip and an open canvas for the, for the greatest artist in the universe, the greatest chef who can cook up rapes, Molestations, sickness, hurt, miscarriages, broken hearts, mental brokenness, physical brokenness, relational frustration, departed daddies, departed mommies, drug abuse, who he can see their lives as one big missionary trip. You didn't get on a boat for this trip. You didn't get on a plane for this trip. You got a physical body that God has put himself into by redeeming you through Christ and he's on the ship with you. And he's taking you through it. But the purpose of it is not for you to kick, scratch, and bite the whole way. I hope to God that somebody under the sound of my voice can see their lives and Jesus uniquely using their lives in ways they can never imagine. For the God who trumps your dream. Even if God didn't allow your dream to come to pass, that's a part of your journey. Sometimes God has to break your heart before he can make your heart. Sometimes I'm waiting to get to my calling. No. No. You're waiting for some big old stage. (laughs) It ain't going to happen. It starts when you trust Jesus and you accept the call by God causing you to accept the call. That's your calling. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And everything gives thanks. Whether you eat, whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. Some of you need to stop praying to get out of the struggle. Some of you need to begin praying that God would give you grace to maximize his glory while you're still in the struggle. Because when you don't pray God-centered prayers, you're going to consistently end up bitter. But when you relinquish your rights and say, God, I'm, I've been fighting. I'm confused about my prayer life. And it may be because I'm not praying biblically God-centered prayers and seeing things in light of you. Joseph says, I was sent before you to preserve life. So look, Joseph said, God didn't send me through this for me only. He tells his brothers who were the culprits of his pain that God sent me through this so I can minister to you. That's when you know God is healing you. And only Jesus Christ can do that. Amen. Only Christ can do it. Amen. Only Jesus can help someone to see a mess like our lives and see it in the beauty and glory of redemption. I don't care what stage in life you're in. But can you see your pain as something that God, used? what does 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says? When we've gone through challenges and God has comforted us, We're supposed to comfort others with the comfort that we've received. I'm not trying to oversimplify your pain. I'm just trying to give you biblical perspective. And so the prayer is that you won't live in devil-centered frustration. Whenever you don't see your life in light of the gospel, you're living a devil-centered life not a Christ-centered life. So I pray that through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would see our lives as redemptive missionaries who are on a trip with God as pilgrims do I didn't even get to that part. I was going to talk about what it means to be a pilgrim. We'll talk about that another time. But you're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner through here. This is not going to be your permanent crib, so you got to make the most of the time while you're in this crib. So maybe you don't know Jesus Christ is saved and you're sitting in here saying, I hear you. But where was God when it happened? Why do you only ask where was God when something bad happens to you? But never ask where was God when something good was happening to you? Maybe you're here today and you don't, we're not just talking about relational fractures between you and humans. We're talking about fractures between you and the living God. You're separated from God because of your sin. Because of you and I, our choice to sin. But Christ, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, gives us the grace to live in light of that reality. So trust Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Not Christ and and I want a healing. No. The first place of healing is between your relationship with God. It starts there. So you can walk away from here trying to apply this if you want to. But if you don't know Christ, you're not going to be biblically empowered to do that. So the reason why you trust Christ is not to have wholeness in your human relationships only, but the first place where, where healing comes is God doesn't need the healing. We need the healing, and he's provided the healing path, and that's the cross. Trust Christ and Christ alone that he died on the cross, was bledging for your sins, was raised up on the third day for you. If you believe that, you're saved. We would ask that in the bulletin, in your bulletins or at the table, there's cards. Fill them out. And if you've trusted Christ today, if you want to trust Christ in Christ alone, we want to talk to you. We want to engage you. If it's not clear, we want to clarify it. Fill that out and we want to contact you. Father, we thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ.